Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Climate policy was an integral part of President elect Joe Biden's campaign platform, and his administration will evaluate an unprecedented number of issues through an environmental lens. Brownstein's government relations team provides insight into which decision makers in Biden's orbit will play a key role on climate issues, what immediate actions the new administration is likely to take, and the level of appetite in Congress for energy and environmental reform. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is John Rupsky. I am co-chair of our firm's Energy Environment Resource Strategies Group. Really pleased to be joined today with uh, three of my outstanding colleagues, people I really respect and have a great opportunity to work with. Let me first start out by introducing Brian McKeon. Brian is a senior member of the uh, firm of Democratic uh, Nature. Brian worked in the Senate for Senators Barbara Boxer and Jean Shaheen. Those were uh, prominent members on energy and environmental issues. In particular, Senator Boxer was chair of the Senate Environment and Public uh, Works Committee, where a number of EPA-related items went through. And, and Brian's got a, a really long uh, list of uh, areas he's worked on on that front. Jason Buckner was somebody who's worked in both the President Bill Clinton and President Barack Obama administration. He worked at the White House under President Clinton. Under President Obama, worked at the U.S. Department of the Interior, where he headed up the Office of Congressional Affairs. He also was a chief of staff on Capitol Hill for a uh, Blue Dog Democrat from Oklahoma. And Reese Goldsmith has had a chance to work at the Small Business Administration in the Office of Advocacy. She worked at the Department of Energy in the Loan Guarantee Office and worked at the Department of Justice in the Environmental and Natural Resources Division. And so her background is extremely helpful uh, dealing with some of those agencies as well. So it's been, um, again, it's an extremely talented group. And uh, we're looking forward to discussing uh, what some of the priorities may look like both uh, coming out of uh, President Biden and, uh, and his team uh, coming up here and out of Congress uh, in the next little while as it relates to energy and climate policy. So the people that we have, Brian, you in particular, Jason, you uh, as well, Reese, you've had a lot of conversations when it was the Biden campaign. You've had a lot of conversations with the Biden transition, and we know you're going to have a lot of conversations once they're actually in office. And I think the truth is Brownstein has been working with those folks in a lot of capacities. We have a number of our colleagues who speak to them regularly um, and have some really uh, important insights. And so, Brian, if we start with you, climate was something that then-candidate uh, Biden spoke about quite a bit. It's something that during the Democratic primaries certainly got a ton of attention as a party platform. Uh, it's obviously something that I think we're going to see a lot of. How do you view climate in the context of the administration and some areas you think they're going to focus? Well, thanks, John. I think what, we're see what we've seen so far in the transition is just a continued focus on climate inside and outside of the traditional areas where those policies generally get discussed. In some of the statements made by cabinet nominees and agencies, not the Interior Department or the EPA or, or elsewhere, you're hearing folks talk about climate change as something that they want to get their hands on. I think what you're also going to see is, you know, after the 20th, once folks are in these jobs, decisions are going to be made 
um, with a climate lens over it to the extent that, you know, things are, are tangential or somewhat related to climate change. I think you're going to see regulatory decisions, executive orders, policy priorities for these new cabinet secretaries take that sort of view of, of the world. How can this policy impact or mitigate climate change? Can it, can it not? Um, and if it can, let's, let's try and figure out how we can make an impact. Um, you know, of course, we've seen the Biden transition stand up sort of new uh, roles in the administration. You know, first and foremost, uh, former secretary and former Senator John Kerry, who will be given a mission to be an international steward um, on climate issues, travel the world and, and make sure that uh, our international and diplomatic policies are, are focused on this, you know, of course, in, in tandem with the, the new secretary of state. But just to put a finer point on it, our expectation is that everything is going to be viewed with this climate lens uh, to the extent that that's possible. Um, and it's going to just be part of decision-making as, as a regular course. And Jason, when you look at non-traditional agencies, for instance, uh, the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission, uh, the Department of Treasury, do you see climate joining in there and, and how could that potentially look? Sure. I think there's a number of agencies where the administration is going to probably, they're going to try to blanket, you know, in a new format of that we've not seen before of all agencies kind of taking on climate in some form or fashion. I mean, whether it be at Department of Justice, the Biden administration, incoming Biden administration has noted that they want to, you know, stand up a climate uh, justice sort of division at, there at Health and Human Services. They want to stand up a health equity office that would take into account um, the effects of climate change on health. You're going to see probably at CEQ, which is a White House office, the environmental justice uh, advisory and environmental justice uh, interagency groups kind of stood up as well. You know, places like SEC are going to start taking a higher interest in sort of ESG reporting by some of these corporations. So I think across the board, you're going to see a much more kind of comprehensive look at climate change than you've seen in past administrations, even the Obama administration. And Reese, you've uh, been quick to point out previously that uh, you believe environmental justice is going to be some a theme that we're also going to hear about. That's a term that maybe not everyone listening um, is as familiar with. Uh, do you want to talk about you know what you think this means to the Biden administration and how it might manifest itself? Sure. I, yeah, I think a lot of people are hearing the term environmental justice, but maybe not having a full understanding of what that might encapsulate. Uh, one good example is its intersection with the pandemic. A lot of underserved communities and communities that are disproportionately impacted by air pollution are experiencing higher rates of deaths from COVID. And so I think you're going to see a lot of talk about Clean Air Act impacts and and you're going to see that these communities are going to want to um, have some sort of recourse. So the administration will likely talk about these issues and infuse them in every agency that they uh, work with. I, I don't think it would be out of the question to even see in Janet Yellen's confirmation a question about climate. 
um, which we wouldn't normally see from a treasury secretary. Yeah, that's really, I think that's really important. And I agree with you. I think this is happening all the time. Brian, you want to chime in? Yeah, I just want to add, you know, I think that we're also seeing a, you know, what we, what we didn't see when President Obama took office, which is that a lot of outside organizations, be it corporate interests, be it NGOs, environmental organizations, they really organize themselves from August until January. And, and some of them put out pretty comprehensive first day, first 100 day, first two year plans and, and essentially gave those binders over, over to, to some of these agency review teams. There's a playbook in, in place that, that a lot of smart folks have spent a lot of time coming up with. And, you know, I think you're, you're going you're gonna to see to the extent that they are able to do things without Congress. And I know we're going to talk about this. There's a lot of things that they can do. So there, there will be opportunities to influence that, of course, and talk to, um, you know, these regulators and, and, and agency heads as, as plans go into, into place. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot, there's a huge menu of stuff out there that they can do in the early part of the administration that you know, folks should be prepared for. Brian, if, uh, if I can come back to you, as we know, the confirmations may take a little bit of time, uh, depending on the individual uh, of these agencies, and, and we'll get into uh, the specifics in a minute. But you want to talk just a little bit about how, you know, your perception of how the Biden administration may be staffing up with senior roles, non-confirmed individuals in order to kind of deal with a lag in potential confirmation? Yeah. As we're speaking here now, uh, you know, this week before the inauguration, there have only been a handful of uh, confirmation hearings that have been set. Um, They are more national security focused nominees. I think we will see confirmation hearings happen into the, you know, end part of January and the first weekend in February with the expectation that, um, you know, floor action will will occur after that. But of course, this wearing in is, is on the 20th. So what the transition is is trying to do um, is have a number of folks identified in non-Senate confirmable positions who can you know go into the building on day one, you know take the uh, the transition binders, take information that folks on the outside have sent in, policy priorities, things that need to get done or things that need to get rolled back, um, and start those processes immediately, with or without there being a you know, an EPA administrator confirmed on the 20th or the 21st, you know, the expectations that, that there will be senior uh, experienced people, you know, likely coming from previous experience in the administration or, or senior House and Senate experience will be able to come in and, and you know, turn the keys and, and make, you know, put things in a position to be ready to go when, you know, they need a uh, confirmed person to, to put their imprint on it. I think that's a really important point because it, it means that the, this team wants to hit the ground running and and not wait till mid uh, February, you know, when some of these uh, people are going to be confirmed. Jason, you know, as we think about kind of the big three environmental agencies that uh, do a bunch of this work, EPA, Interior, uh, Department of Energy, the way that this uh, Biden team has so far announced themselves, there is a layer over that. Do you want to talk a little bit about your perception of how you think things may work on the domestic climate side? Brian obviously talked about uh, former Senator uh, Kerry and his role on the international, but on the domestic, how that might work. Sure. So in terms of the domestic um, side of things, if you go to the Department of the Interior, uh, which is the public lands managing side of the house. I think the administration is probably 
you're probably going to have a focus on the onshore side of oil and gas in terms of immediate things to look at uh, bringing regulation back um, and rolling regulations back. They're probably also going to try to look at ways that they can begin to bring the renewable energy uh, portfolio to the, the focus as well. In terms of EPA, I think a lot of things, and, and I think in both areas, whether it's DOI or EPA, you're going to see some things in terms of methane. At DOI, you're probably going to see them try to repeal. They're probably going to repeal the BLM methane rule or waste management rule, which is also known as venting and flaring. EPA, they're going to look at the Trump EPA methane rule and uh, repeal that back. I think you're going to see at Department of Energy, they're going to do a lot of focus in terms of things like carbon capture, sequestration, uh, electric vehicles, that kind of thing. So I think there's there's probably a lot to do that they've got to do. And there's a lot of things that they can do shorthand, whether it be uh, attempting to repeal rules, repeal uh, executive orders, secretarial orders, right out of the gate. And Reese, uh, the Department of Energy is poised to um, probably, we'll talk about this in a little bit, probably going to receive a large tranche of money to try to help uh, technologies. What role do you see the Department of Energy playing uh, in, you know, in your former uh, colleagues? Sure. Well, we're already seeing a renewed interest in the Law and Programs Office, um, which already has $40 billion in existing loan guarantee authority. The, the recent omnibus actually loosened restrictions on the program, making it accessible to more companies and um, making those initial buy-in costs for a loan guarantee much more affordable. So I think there is a lot of renewed interest. Um, additionally, there were talks of reforms to the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which hasn't issued any loans. However, uh, that did not get in the omnibus package. So I think there's more room for reforms there. Um, I also wanted to um, circle back to an earlier point that Brian had made about the fact that they're going to rely a lot on some of those non-Senate confirmed positions early on in the administration. And I think uh, also to note the environmental community's influence on this administration, especially through their organizing power, is demonstrated through the selection of Gina McCarthy as domestic climate czar. So I think that's something to watch and also seeing how that interplays with CEQ, which normally took over that coordinating role. Um, so how Gina McCarthy and Brenda Mallory work together to kind of oversee that whole process within the traditional agencies is going to be very interesting to watch. It, it really is. Brian, if we uh, go into uh, Ms. McCarthy, it, it'll be interesting as she's former EPA administrator during the Obama administration. How do you think her role works? You've got Michael Regan as the nominee to be the uh, EPA administrator should we view her as coordinator? Should we view her as decision maker? What What do you think we're going to see out of uh, that role? Yeah, it's a really good question, John. There are a lot of cooks in the kitchen on this issue. You know, I th I think it, it's it's all going to going to funnel down from the president himself. You know, organizations reflect their leadership. Biden is a no egos, you know, sort of no nonsense kind of guy, and I. It's going to be his expectation. I would assume that everyone, you know, rose in the same direction and, and 
that, you know, doesn't squabble over turf, um, which is why I think it should work in practice, even though there are a lot of people, you know, coordinating. And I think it's just an acknowledgement of the scope of the problem and the interest in, in doing things to mitigate it, that they are putting a lot of really senior, really accomplished, really experienced people who know how the levers of government work or do not work. So, you know, somebody like Jean McCarthy knows a lot about the EPA, but she, she certainly knows a lot about other agencies too. And, and, you know, maybe it is, it's, it's her role to be that lens as things move, you know, from, you know, an agency up to OMB or up to OIRA for, you know, final approval, you know, let's, let's let this office take a look at it and make sure that we got to where we wanted to get on the climate lens of, of this policy. And, you know, if things need to be amended or changed, well, she's certainly someone who's got the, the acumen to be able to say, no, let, let's, let's, let's make a couple modifications here. We can do this a little bit better. Um, so I, that's my expectation as to how this is going to work. That being said, there, there are a lot of people that are going to have a lot of say, um, and, you know, that can, can create bottlenecks. And the hope is that these people are professional enough and experienced enough and, um, you know, fully eyes open on the scope of the problem that things move in, in an expeditious way when they need to. Thank you, Brian. That's, that's really helpful. So uh, we're going to assume that these individuals all get confirmed and that, uh, you know, the agencies are up and running and, and they have a strong role. But Congress is going to have a lot of opportunities to legislate. And, and maybe I think all of our expectation, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Congress may be legislating more, even though the margins are very tight because of uh, uh, there's a couple vehicles that they have. And one is uh, an archaic term of budget reconciliation. Jason, you know, on the climate front there, there's obviously a number of tools. Do you expect climate to be part of what happens in budget reconciliation? And any examples of things you think could be part of that? Yeah, I, I do. And um, Brian is probably more of an expert on budget reconciliation, but I do expect in terms of budget reconciliation, the probably one of the main areas that they will, I could foresee them trying to use budget reconciliation for would be in terms of a price on carbon. Probably the easiest for them to do through uh, a budget reconciliation process. So, Reese, uh, uh, when you look at how Congress might use it, the tax code is obviously going to come up and, and very well may be a place. Do you expect a potential slew of new credits or, or other ways for to using the tax policy uh, to influence uh, climate behavior? I do think that that is one avenue that's being looked at. Um, in the last Congress, the Green Act um, introduced uh, – in ways and means was uh, something that was much discussed. I also think um, Representative Castor, who chairs the Climate Crisis Committee, she also noted that she's going to use that report that they put out as their playbook. So there was a lot in there. It was a very comprehensive report citing a number of legislative vehicles to address the climate crisis. So a lot of legislation will be floating out there and seeing what can actually move is going to really be the challenge. Brian, uh, the chamber you worked in the U S Senate for, uh, you know, nearly a decade is one that obviously 50, 50 with, uh, vice president, uh, Harris breaking ties. There's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, an individual Senator, having the power to, to hold up, you know, I know in this space, we've heard a lot about Senator Manchin 
and that he is probably more conservative than uh, most of his colleagues and, and might not go along. You've lived in a world of very tight margins um, before and when you were up in the Senate. How do you expect that to play itself out? And, and do you think that's um, more is being read into this by some than, than maybe necessary? Well, y- yes and no. It's important to remember that every one senator has has a significant and, and outsized influence on what does or does not occur in a 50-50 Senate, um, especially in a reconciliation universe. Yes, Senator Manchin is, is you know, typically more conservative on some of these, uh, you know, the issues that we're talking about today, energy and, and climate. Um, but that's not to say that more progressive members may not be interested in supporting something that doesn't meet certain tests that, that they have. You know, folks uh, should remember that Senator Sanders is the chairman of the budget committee and the budget committee is responsible for one drafting the budget resolution that includes instructions to the uh, committees of jurisdiction to report reconciliation legislation. So he's got a huge role to play in this process and certainly, you know, has some disagreements with Senator Manchin on, on matters of climate policy. So it's going to be a delicate balancing act. Um, you know, we haven't talked a whole lot of, about the House, but, you know, margins are, are slim there uh, as well. Um, and small blocks of, of votes there could could shift something from, you know, approval to disapproval uh, on the House floor. So I think what it all means is this is going to have to be pretty well choreographed. The, the lessons I think Democrats learned from when they did reconciliation bills for Obamacare and for some student loan um, measures back in 2009, 2010, is that it can get messy if it's not worked out ahead of time. And to the extent that it's possible, and it is, uh, it'll take some time. And, you know, you know, th- this is not something that will be easy to do or quick to do, despite urging to, to move some of these reconciliation bills early. If they choreograph stuff ahead of time and, and know, all right, who's getting amendment votes on this what needs to be in the final package in order to get us to 51 votes in the Senate and, and maintain our 218 number in the House. They can get it done, but there has to be some realistic expectations on both sides of the Democratic caucus in the House and the Senate that not everyone's going to get everything they want, but let's move the ball forward here. You know, we have uh, a number of bites at the apple um, in this Congress to do reconciliation. You know, is potentially up to three bills. And I think the overarching view is that the economy is going to need a stimulus. This is one way to provide it. Um, And it's a way to provide it in, uh, you know, in in some way, shape or form that is is helpful to mitigate the climate crisis. So I think if cooler heads can prevail on some of the specifics, they can get something done that has a real measured impact. Um, You know, even if it's not going to be something that everyone is going to going to say is, you know, um, universe shifting type of policy. Jason, um, President-elect Biden is, in his uh, speeches, has been talking about the, the need for the nation to heal, come together, as Brian is you know, using the term cooler heads. I, um, one of those things he's really spoken about is, is his long history in the Senate of working with Republicans. Do you see all of these measures being uh, kind of jammed through with tight margins of uh, Democratic votes only? Or do you see um, a real effort to try to uh, bring along a Lisa Murkowski or Mitt Romney, et cetera, Susan Collins? You, know, you, you can insert the name. No, I think you're exactly right, John. I think um, for the most part, you know, we're seeing partisanship like we've never seen before. However, I think there are 
the outliers like the Mitt Romneys, the Lisa Murkowskis, who, you know, depending on the individual piece of policy or legislation could come across the aisle. Again, it, one or two of them is still going to make it tight, but you're not going to have to have a tiebreaker vote by the vice president at that point. Um, I think also just going back to what uh, Brian was previously speaking about with Manchin, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Manchin and in the house on Pallone in order to go along with some of these things. So, I mean, they're, they're committee chairman and there's going to be extreme pressure on them to, to kind of go along. Now that's not to say that they won't be able to behind the scenes negotiate something for themselves, maybe later down the road at, at a different time. But I think there's going to be extreme pressure on those uh, two individuals as chairman to, to not stop the process. Yeah. A really important point. Reese, uh, when you look at uh, Congress, you, you talked about um, chair, uh, woman caster and, and her role in that committee. Are there other players we haven't mentioned that you would look to and say that you believe are going to play an outsized role in, in whatever Congress chooses to do? That's a good question. I think there are going to be a lot of voices on this issue. I don't expect the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's to go away. And I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, very strong discussion of how far we need to go on climate legislation. So that's going to be pushing the House from, from one side. However, you also have these moderate members who have a huge interest in climate, want to do something, but are also thinking about the economic impact of climate legislation, uh, impacts on energy costs and, and things like that, and the economic drivers of climate legislation. So you're gonna see, I think, a huge discussion of any type of stimulus needing to include uh, consideration of climate. So you're gonna see a lot of, of that infused in any type of jobs package, which I think benefits everyone. But in terms of, of this issue, I think there are going to be a lot of voices. And on the Republican side of the aisle, we've just had a lot of shakeups in the committees. Um, so you're going to have Senator Barrasso um, now in a, a, in a ranking member role on ENR, and then you're going to have Capito from West Virginia on EPW. So there's a, there's a whole new chorus to add to this. Uh, it's a great point. Well, it's going to be very interesting. You know, hopefully one of the takeaways here is that obviously we've got a team that is in the middle of this mix. Um, and, uh, you know, the insights that we got today are, are great. Really appreciate everyone's time and uh, look forward to uh, doing this again in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.